Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of No Filter Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Page. Danny McLean's under the weather today, not going to be able to join us, but Brandon McAfee, as always, at the controls and joining me on the program. Free at last, Brandon. Free at last. Thank the Lord we's free at last. Did you think those, those, those words undoubtedly were reverberating around the Matthew Stafford household all weekend as he got his wish, a ticket out of Detroit and away from the FLs who dealt him to the Rams for Jared Goff in exchange for Stafford and taking on Jared Goff's ridiculous contract. The FLs, as you all know by now, received a third round pick in this year's draft. That's number 88 overall. First round choices in 2022-23. Of course, if Stafford and the Rams have anywhere near the level of success they hope they will the next few seasons, neither of those first round picks is going to come in the latter part of the round. So, Brandon, you're the lifelong uh, Lions wacko here and still a big fan how was your how, how was your reaction to this what was your reaction to it i like it i like it a lot i have no issues with this trade whatsoever i did not expect matthew stafford to come back and so i think that this was a pretty good haul i mean getting multiple first round picks was something that i didn't think that the lions would get and then when you take a, a step back and look at the broader picture of of the lions and now this new dan campbell era with Brad Holmes. Now we're taking a look at a six-year contract this guy's got. The next three years, he's loaded with picks. He's going to be able to build himself a team. The bummer is we're right back where we've always been, where, oh, I guess we're not competing this season or next season. But ultimately, I don't think that Jared Goff is as bad of a player as a lot of people think he is. I think he's serviceable, especially for uh, the Detroit Lions and what our expectations are going to be. So ultimately... I like the trade. I think everybody won. The Rams got themselves a good quarterback, and it'll be interesting. I'm going to root for Matthew Stafford to do very well over there with the Rams, and I'm going to root for the Lions to make very good choices with these draft picks. That's the big question now. Yes, it is. Across my TV set Friday night came that constant obnoxious crawl from ESPN, part of which read over and over again, Houston Texans, new GM Nick Casario. We have zero interest in trading Deshaun Watson. Of course they have interest in trading him. The kid wants out. But this is how business is done properly. You don't do as Sheila and the FLs did. You don't agree to a divorce and then make it very public because now everybody knows you have to get rid of a prime asset and you're not going to get as much in return for know. that it asset. It still seemed like he did, they did pretty well. Do you think that's that they fi- That's got fine. A and you, I understand. I see what you're saying. And the Lions lapdog media members in Detroit were all over this agreeing with you. The excellent website Deadline Detroit had this headline summing up their attitude, which is yours. A clear win. Detroit sports writers admire what Lions gain in Stafford trade. So the FLs, as you said, Brandon, have gotten a quarterback whose career seems to be on the downside already, though you think there's still hope for him. A guy who is not as good a quarterback as the guy they had, Matthew Stafford, plus the draft choices. What is, and Brandon, you alluded to this as well, what is generally the draft history of the FLs? Need I mention such immortal first-round draft picks as Nick Fairley, Lakin Tomlinson, Lyndon Bodine, way before your time, Brandon. Andre Ware, Joey Harrington, Reggie Rogers. You get the idea, though, in fairness, they've made some really good first-round draft choices, too. But the point is, you, you just don't know. I love this. 
about Goff's gargantuan contract from Mike Florio, whom you see on NBC TV's Football Night in America show Sundays. I'm quoting him. In hindsight, it was insane for the Rams to pay Goff $33.5 million per year. It was insane to hitch the wagon to Goff for, as a practical matter, four more seasons. And it would be insane for any other team with so many options at quarterback to trade for a contract that entails a fully guaranteed commitment of $43.25 million over the next two years. Well, they also got some draft picks here. I don't know why everybody hates Jared Goff so much. The guy took a team to the Super Bowl. He's won two playoff games. How many has Stafford won? <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> I just I don't I don't understand. And I and earlier you mentioned that you know Sheila played her hand by saying that they wanted to get rid of Stafford. Well, do you think that they would have got a better haul than what they got? Because it's starting to leak through, you know, some of the other offers that Stafford got. I guess uh, maybe Carolina had offered them the number eight overall pick in this draft. And what was the hurry, Brandon? I, I, I was reading the news reports uh, Friday and Saturday. They're going to trade him. They're going to trade him this week. This week. What, is there a big hurry with this with Sheila and the Lions? I don't think there was a hurry. I just think that they got bombarded early with trade requests. There were there was a lot of interested teams in Matthew Stafford. The league sees that he can throw a football. Sometimes it's to the other team, but he can throw a football. He can put up some big numbers. And I, I, I keep going back to this because everybody is down on the Jared Goff situation. The kid's 26 years old. He's been to a Super Bowl. He's won two playoff games. I don't. I don't see why this You're is making such good a points. terrible. You're making good points. You know, if they wanna, if they wanna draft somebody, a quarterback, in the next three years, they have a big selection of first round picks that they can theoretically pick yeah. a quarterback for the future. Well, but, you like it. You, you like it from that standpoint, right there, because they were talking about the seventh pick. Maybe the Ohio State kids available, and they're going to go ahead and take Justin Fields. Now, with that team needing so much help in so many places, they don't have to spend that pick on a quarterback. They're going to tie their wagon to Jared Goff, and you know maybe the kid does play well. But it's axiomatic in any trade in sports: who got the best player? Clearly the Los Angeles Rams having two first round picks in a year. Last time the FL said that luxury was 2009. I think when they used the first to take Stafford, then used the second on tight end, Brandon Pettigrew, who had about two very good years in Detroit till he blew out his knee. He's already been out of football for five years. And Pettigrew was last heard from when he was arrested for disorderly conduct and public drunkenness in February of 2017 after a Dallas bar fight. Then he he was arrested in July of 2018 in Pittsburgh for assaulting a policeman after an argument arose regarding an unpaid limo fee. So, you know, just because you got all these draft choices, ask yourselves this, folks, folks, do you trust the FLs to make excellent use of those draft choices? Well, it's not it's, it's not going after the quote unquote FLs. It's these drafts are done by leadership. The drafts that you talked to about earlier, that those were Martin Mayhew picks, those were Bob Quinn picks. We have a brand yep. new GM and, now. Yes, and the same old FL's philosophy. Hey, let's give the guy a chance. That's what you're talking about. Hey, let's give the guy a chance. That's I mean, how it's, they operate. it's better than just you know being sully about the whole damn thing and just being yeah. negative about it. You got to look forward to something. And <laughs> and to me, a whole and bunch if you're of a Detroit sports picks, fan, there ain't too much to look forward to. Hey, how about Michigan basketball? 
you can look forward to that, right? <laughs> well, oh, by the way, you know, uh, I want to ask you about this too. Uh, from your childhood baseball cards, Brandon, comes a name I had never heard of before. Jerry Goff, who played parts of six seasons in the big leagues throughout the 1990s with Montreal, Pittsburgh, and Houston. He was a catcher. It's Jared's father. Do you know that name? <laughs> I've only really seen it from all the little information that you learn about Jared Goff as he becomes a Detroit Lion. You, you find out who his girlfriend is in their Instagram. You also find out that his father was a Major League Baseball player. I could have never told you who the guy was. You didn't get his cards. You didn't have his cards when you were a boy. Growing you know, up. in the in the early nineties when I was, you know, six through ten years old, I wasn't right. a big Montreal, Pittsburgh, or Houston fan. I was only But you a, collected I, cards. Didn't his card come in your packs that you got? I, if it did, I don't remember it. Or did you collect cards? Well, of That's course I did. Yeah, you didn't. I, I did, but you know, he just he wasn't what the guy have, like sitting thirteen career yeah, I home runs. I thought something? you might know who that is. And I'll tell you another thing you want to talk about is that um this kid Goff matriculated at really one of the, the greatest educational institutions in the world. He's from Northern California, but he nothing went to Cal in Berkeley. He went to Cal Berkeley. So that indicates to me he's extremely bright. He is extremely bright. That way, he should really understand these complex defenses that NFL coordinators are going to throw at him and really have been throwing at him. Do you really associate what college you go to to how good you're going to be in football? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because Cal Berkeley is one of the elite academic institutions. Oh, so you think he that he must have ta- he must have taken classwork there, and he must have passed. Oh, his classwork. so so That's every impressive. single every single quarterback in the NFL is a Harvard graduate, right? Yale graduate? Hmm? No, of course not. But I think that's a positive. Uh, I, I think that's I a think positive. I think it means nothing. I think that he, he it, you have no guarantee that he even went to class. He was a quarterback at a major school. He probably didn't even go to class. <laughs> I don't think Cal Berkeley plays football like that. I really don't think they operate like that. So anyway, uh, now that this is out of the way, and I just want to clear one thing up. I'm not necessarily saying that this is a bad trade for Detroit. They had an unworkable situation where a guy wanted out, understandably so, and the FLs had to accommodate him and move on from him. I think given those circumstances, it looks like on paper they did. Yeah, they did pretty well with that. And now we'll see, won't we? And now we'll see. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. I, I, I'm, in, I'm excited to watch Matthew Stafford in a different system and we're going to learn all the answers to the questions we've had. Hey, is he going to win a Super Bowl with a team with a defense that's good? Is the you know a young coach that wants him there really bad? He's got some good receivers and Cooper Cup, and I don't know. We'll see what happens here, but you know that that's the fun of it. We get to watch and learn and and figure out yeah. if we were wrong. And yes, if he goes and wins a Super Bowl right away, we might be kicking ourselves in the asses. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I just don't. Yep. Now we get, speaking of the Super Bowl, well, we get, we're in the middle of two weeks of nonstop hype. This is the time of year in football I, I just hate, Brandon, because I'm tired of football. Football's been going on a long time now. Okay, I'm getting a little tired of it. Now we're in hockey. Now we're in basketball. Now this month, spring training opens up, and we're going to be into baseball. So you're going to see features in every newspaper on every website in the country about every single player in this game, about every angle with respect to their lives, their situation. You know, I don't want to read it. Can we play the game? Can we play the game? Are you into all this hype that goes along with the Super Bowl? No, and I think it's going to really be toned down this year because of the whole COVID situation. You're not going to have. Well, that's a, No, that's an angle. That's a news angle. They're going to beat that to death. Well, sure, but you're still not going to have as many live events as you normally have during a Super Bowl, which normally brings a lot of revenue to a city. And, you know, there's nonstop 
there's nonstop shows featuring exactly what you're talking about, the storylines of the Super Bowl and stuff like that. There's going to be all this talk about how Patrick Mahomes was in kindergarten when Tom Brady won his very first Super Bowl, you know, all that hype stuff. But Radio Row, I don't even know if that's going down because of Corona this year. So good question. Yeah, yeah I really a good question know. about that. It, it yeah. is a bummer. This yeah. past weekend was the worst weekend to me because all this football, you're all pumped up, and then you get this one break where there's no football games on, and it's – it's just boring, and you're, you're waiting. I, I waiting. wish they would play the Super Bowl the week after the NFC and AFC championships. That's, that's all I'm saying. It's just too much hype. But I ignore it. I ignore it. This is not part of my life. The stock market, not in a major way, is part of my life. It's probably a part of your life, too. I'm sure you got some money in it. Anybody who's got a 401k does. There you go. There you go. I used to even do stock market futures over the weekend, and boy, and they were down. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, Monday's going to be ugly. And now here it is Monday morning. I go on CNBC.com, and the market's going way up again. I don't know anything about this stuff, really, but I know who does, and that's Luke Nowacki. You guys need to get in touch with Luke to help guide you through all the sturm and drunk and, and all of the uncertainty about where the market's going, where the economy's going. Luke's with Pinnacle Wealth Strategies, and he wants to help you plan for your future family obligations in your own retirement by making money in the market. He's got a track record of success. He's got decades of experience, and he will create a custom solution for you, your family, your business. If you want to call Luke Nowacki at 248-663-4748. The, comp, uh, the uh, consultation is complimentary. You talk to Luke, no charge. Then if you feel comfortable, he's going to lay out a plan for you. He is knowledgeable, caring, ethical. He is Luke Nowacki, Pinnacle Wealth Strategies. Give him a call again. The number is 248-663-4748. And his advisory services are offered through Royal Alliance Associates. You're listening to the No Filter Sports Podcast. Brandon, how bad can it get in East Lansing? Wait a minute. That's a rhetorical question. I'm going to answer that. Here's a headline I just saw on a Wisconsin website this morning, and I quote, UW sweeps Michigan State into the trash, throws trash can into Lake Mendota, end quote. And that, of course, was a reference to the fact that Michigan State lost its weekend hockey series to Wisconsin. Basketball, you probably watched. Ohio State, the latest team to humble Michigan State, 79-62 Sunday, and a game that put it out there for the entire country to see that something is terribly wrong with this Michigan State basketball team. Ten turnovers, that's good for them. They led the conference with an average of 14 coming in, but they shot 32%. Three-point shooting, an almost unbelievable 5-for-24. Joshua Langford led the Spartans with 14 points, but he was actually a big part of the problem. He shot 4 of 15 from the field. What Tom Izzo team turns the ball over the way they have this season with incessant bonehead plays? What Tom Izzo coach team doesn't crash the glass and fight for every rebound? What Tom Izzo team, when it gets down, stops playing? Or doesn't even show up to play in the first place? Looks to me like they misjudged some talent, made some recruiting mistakes, Every MSU player to me is a Shakespearean character possessed of a tragic flaw. Tom said yesterday, my stars got to play better, end quote. Tom, your stars aren't stars. Did you see the game, Brandon? I did. It's now a three-game skid. This team looks bad. <laughs> We're not going to see him in March Madness. At least I don't believe we are unless you know something crazy happens and they go on a hot streak. I do wonder these last two games – 
if they really had a lot to do with that big break, you know, that 20 day break that they had and because the COVID, of COVID stuff, too. They've been hammered by COVID. Let's face it. Right. Yeah. I, to me, it's just it just seems like an off year for them. And it, it, it's one of those things where I just think Tom is will be back. He'll be fine. It's just well, that's an off year. And yeah. it happens. But here, here, look, Brandon, here's what I'm getting at. OK, when I say tragic flaws. Foster Lawyer won Mr. Basketball in the state of Michigan three years ago. He was a great high school player at Clarkston. But the first time I saw him as a collegian, I thought, this kid's too small. He's not athletic enough. He cannot make he can't make a splash at the Big Ten level. He should have gone to one of the Mac schools. Marcus Bingham. I keep waiting for him to gain weight, to put on muscle. He's a string bean who gets pushed around and posterized and dunks. Rocket Watts. He can't shoot. He was two for nine Sunday. Alleged team leader Aaron Henry, so inconsistent. Great game against Nebraska. Two for eight Sunday, scored just 10 points. Highly touted Marquette transfer Joey Hauser is highly overrated. Sure had us fooled in the early part of the season, didn't Michigan State? Especially after the win at Duke when State was the number four in the national polls. But we've said this before, haven't we? You know, MSU always suffers some bad losses in the early part of the season against top national programs. But Izzo's a tough guy and his teams are composed of tough guys and you know they're going to be ready in march as you said brandon i don't think this team that's true because in the past we've seen we've seen early losses and then really really long tournament runs and if you don't get to the tournament you can't make that run to redeem yourself uh, yeah. you, so so what do you think it is i mean we have all these kids we have bingham we have henry we have hauser all these guys that are they're not as good as michigan state coaches thought they were going to be yeah. As I said, they made mistakes. Or is it something uh, in the coaching itself? Should they be coaching them up a little no, bit more? No, or do you no. think? Th- I mean, Tom is Tom. Tom's got a great staff. Come on, Tom's record speaks for itself. I'm not going to criticize Tom, except for again, perhaps misidentifying in these cases some talent. Now, but here's the here's the what I think is the bigger thing about this, Brandon. MSU fans are accustomed to having the college basketball program in the state of Michigan. And now they watch in shock and awe as Juwan Howard has already already taken that mantle away from Michigan State and has the number one ranked recruiting class in the country coming into Ann Arbor next year. Sure. Who would have dreamed it? Yeah, but again, when we see them fire up against Northwestern on February 3rd, are they going to suffer the same setback that the Spartans did after having to sit 20 days? Are we going to see Michigan, number four Michigan, come out of the gate here and just lay a stinker? I'll tell you what, though, I, I did like what Tom said uh, after that utter debacle in Piscataway on Thursday night after we had recorded our show, a game that might have set Michigan State basketball back 25 years, a game in which MSU scored 20 points in the first half, and not to be outdone, 17 in the second before being blown out by 30 at the hands of an average Rutgers team that had dropped four of its last five coming in. Tom said, quote, we didn't do a very good job, and that falls on me. I'm sure we have a little COVID hangover. I understand that. But that will not be an excuse for the way we played. That would be an excuse for losing a game, but not the way we played. As supposed team leader Aaron Henry said after that game, he had six turnovers by himself. Quote, it starts with me. And as Malik Hall so correctly summed up after the Rutgers game, quote, they punked us. Malik, they punked you again Sunday, kid. Now, what are you guys going to do about that with gulp? Two games coming up so quickly against Luca Garza and Iowa beginning Tuesday night at Iowa City. Who going to guard Luca Garza in that game, by the way? Any volunteers? 
<laughs> no, they're probably in trouble on that one. And then I think I think they are. So um, as you Michigan State fans know all too well, Rutgers has a good player named Geo Baker. He made some waves off the court the other day by actually referring to big time college basketball as, quote, modern day slavery. That's what he said. Continuing. That's nothing compared to what we bring to our schools in terms of money. Not even saying schools should pay players, which already happens anyway. Oh, it does, son. You got any information on that? Tell us more. He didn't. He says, but others can create their own business and make money off it. So why would an athlete not be allowed to do that? I have to sign a paper that says my name and likeness belongs to Rutgers. Modern day slavery, end quote. Well, you know, uh, Baker's second comment was a response to another person on Instagram, and it read in kind of fractured English, so on and so forth. But I would just say this to Mr. Baker, as is the case with many of these big time college jocks. He struggles with the written and spoken English language. Rutgers is the State University of New Jersey. It is an excellent university, which has prostituted itself to allow young Mr. Baker entrance only because he sure can play basketball. He's been given a scholarship to Rutgers. It's probably worth a quarter million dollars when most of his fellow students will be paying off loans for their Rutgers education into their 30s. I think the young man kind of needs a jolt to reality. And Brandon, if you want to talk about, eh, you um, know, you just kind of proved my Jared Goff point from earlier yeah, in the show with that statement. But the, the the paying student athletes argument is never going to die until it gets fixed. And I think that with uh, the steps that are being taken and the, uh, the the certain states that are allowing the like, eventually here a few years down the road, we're I think we're finally going to see it come to a conclusion in one way, shape, or form. Um, but I'll be speaking of uh, the PC stuff and so on and so forth, as we often do on this program. You know, I was told yesterday uh, by Michigan State superfan Stan Stein, I don't know if you heard this, that real estate agents now no longer refer to listings as having a master bedroom because of the PC posse and the slavery issue we just broached here with the young Rutgers player. Stan says the listing in the real estate sections now read main bedroom instead. Yeah, it's true. And there was a big, I went to the internet. There was a big article on this that I somehow missed in an August edition of what else? The leaders of the mindless PC movement, the New York Times. So remember, Brandon, when you and your wife go to bed tonight, you will be doing so in your main bedroom, not your master bedroom. Stop being a racist, all you people out there. Get with the PC program. <laughs> Following Saturday night's 118-91 road loss to the Warriors, little used Rodney Magruder of the Pistons is making news as his teammates walk back to the locker room. He approached the Warriors' tunnel to confront one of their players, Juan Toscano Anderson, whoever that is, who did not play, uh, but had exchanged words with the Pistons' Wayne Ellington in the game. So then Clay Thompson and Draymond Green used the post-game interviews as an opportunity to insult Magruder, and away they went. Whatever. Denver comes up Monday night. How about the Wings? Did you watch the Wings games they last are few now, days? As of right now, they're on a six-game skid. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's a bummer. I thought that they were going to make a lot more progress this year than they're showing. And... Uh, yeah. Two more losses for the Wings since yeah, the last show we did, Brandon. Bummer, Is the Blashell Watch officially underway now? Has somebody started one of those fire Blashell websites? I don't but, know. you know, I mean, I watched both games. They weren't terrible and going down twice. That's a pretty good Florida Panthers team they lost to last Thursday and then uh, Sunday at Little Caesars Arena. But they can't put the puck in the net. The COVID problems hurting them. Now Tyler Bertuzzi's injured. As you say, what a mess. 
And two scheduled losses coming up here, huh? Don't you think, at least on paper, at Stanley Cup champion Tampa on Wednesday night and Friday night? Then two more games down here where I am in South Florida against the Panthers right after that. Mr. No. Rogers would ask, Mr. Rogers would ask, can you say 0-4? Well, no, you can't say that whatsoever. I mean, just take a look at what the Pistons did over the last week. They did defeat the, the, the defending They beat the Lakers and- without Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis was out. I, it still happened, didn't it? So I, yeah, I wouldn't sure. just look at this on paper and say the next four games are a loss. Yeah, no, you but, don't know. That's why they, as they say, that's why they played the games. I'm just saying, but it doesn't look good. They're not, they're not taking the good. steps right now that they need to take. I mean, sometimes it looks, I watch them and I think these guys are flying all over the ice. They're actually really trying. But then you're right. The execution, the goal scoring just isn't there. When it comes to Jeff Blashill, I just I, I just really feel that Steve Eiserman has no reason to fire him as of right now because anybody he replaces him with is going to get the same results. So I think because they have a good communication on what they want to do right now that he's just going to keep Blashill in that role until the team is ready to either take the next step or it just completely forces okay. his hand and he has okay, so to. What you're, okay, so what you're saying is that if Mike Keenan in his prime were to come in here, or if John Tortorello right now were to come in here, the Wings would have the same results. They wouldn't yeah. put the fear of God into these guys. They wouldn't kick ass and make this team play harder. Because you've yeah. even seen some of the Wings, including Dylan, saying in headlines, you know, we got to play harder. we got to well, play harder. I, no, because unfortunately I do think that this particular situation with the Red Wings right now has to do with talent and it has to do with depth and they're not there. And COVID and COVID to be fair. Sure. Sure. So Mm -hmm. I do not think that you're going to get a different result based on what coach comes in right now. I think that the Red Wings have a plan. Eisenman has already instilled his plan and that plan is for the future, much like we're looking at with the Lions right now. Unfortunately, every team that we have is looking towards the future and we can have no success in, in the city of Detroit in in the meantime, which sucks, but I, no, I don't think the Red Wings. I, there's no there's no free agent splash. It's just one of these things where we're going to continue to develop the guys that we have. We have a lot of good draft uh, opportunities in the next couple of years. We've just made some draft choices from Steve Eiserman, his brand new you know whatever he's putting together. We're going to see the fruition of Eiserman's plan in in you know a year or two or three. Not not right away. Yeah, we got a really interesting guest for you coming up later on in the show today. Tom Stanton, some of you may have already read some of his books. Very accomplished author. I've read one of them myself. Uh, and uh, I think you'll be interested in hearing what Tom has to say and some of the very cool things he's written about. We were talking a moment ago about money, the stock market, CNBC. I saw on CNBC a, a recent headline that said mortgage refinance demand spikes 20% as borrowers fear missing out on record low rates. Folks, don't you miss out on these record low rates. We've been telling you they're in the twos now, the twos. So you want to call Hall Financial today and find out how much refinancing your mortgage through Hall could save you every single month. You go to our website, nofiltersportspodcast.com. You're probably already there right now. And you click on the Hall Financial link that's right there. That will get you started. Or you can call Hall Financial if you prefer. It's such an easy number to remember, 248 248- Three zero eight five thousand. You'll find out how quick and easy the Hall financial process is. And when you call, make sure you tell them that No Filter Sports Podcast with Eli Zaret, Danny McLean, yours truly, Bob Page, and rising star Brandon McAfee sent you. You're listening to the No Filter Sports Podcast. 
Brandon, I, I don't know whether to consider Rob Manfred a, a, a liar. I, I don't know him. I've never met him. I do know that the Major League Baseball Players Association is now mulling over a proposal by MLB to delay the start of the 2021 season. After Manfred said, no, everything's fine. We're going on time. Now, if the union, according to what I've read, does not provide a counter offer by early next week, spring training is likely to start in mid-February is scheduled. But after months of scattered dialogue, they're finding themselves in a similar, similar position to last year. They're disagreeing about the COVID path going forward. The league then has a proposal to push back if the players don't agree to start a spring training to late March. Wouldn't even start till then. The season wouldn't start till late April, and that would be 154 games, just like in the old days. I right. thought they were going to play. And it seems like the MLB uh, MLBPA is going to reject this offer. So pff, right now we're. <laughs> We're waiting for the big heads in baseball to figure it out. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to affect my fantasy draft, which comes at uh, <laughs> late March. And so <laughs> this is a you think I, you think I, you think I would have being an older guy or an old guy if you want. You think I'd have fun do, doing that? Are it kind of keeps you in touch, doesn't it, with all, everything going on in baseball? Fantasy is the best, man. Fantasy gives you a reason to know every single team. It gives you a reason to know the best players in the league. And then, and what ends up happening is as soon as you find out a big story in sports, you don't have to go learn about it. You already know who the Nolan Arenados are. You already know who the Pete Alonzos are, the, 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 the players that are the biggest names in the game. And it's not just for baseball. Yeah. It's for all the sports. Well, are they, are they rioting in the streets of Denver today? I haven't seen reports to that effect after they got a, rid of really one of the great players of his time, Nolan Arenado. What did you think of that trade? Yeah, he's heading over to the Cardinals, the Cardinals which, man, that's, that's a good player to get right there. I don't know. I, I don't know what the Rockies do. They always tend to get rid of their stars. Troy Tulowitzki. They still have Charlie yeah. Blackman, but... Uh, but I don't know. I'd, I'd be upset they're, they're, if I lost, if my team lost Nolan Arenado. Yeah. It's kind of like Detroit, where the fans are so down on the franchise. It's going to take a lot to get them back. I would think that's what's going on in Denver. I'm not out there, and I couldn't care less about the team. So the highest-paid catcher now in the entire history of Major League Baseball is J.T. Real Muto, who decided to re-sign with the Phillies over the weekend. And their new general manager and our former guest on this very program, Dave Dombrowski, Real Muto got a five-year deal worth $115 million. That's $23 million a year. He turns 30 next month. He hit 266 last season. He's a career 278 hitter. Yep. He couldn't carry Bill Freehand's jockstrap, uh, well, let alone the greatest of them all, Johnny Bench. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. We're here to talk crap about JT Real Muto. He's the best offensive catcher in the league right now. That's the what I want to hear get. because you follow this stuff more closely than I. Go now, ahead. The guy averages 20-plus home runs a year right now. And hit 266, Lister. Well, you're also talking about a year with you know 50 games because of COVID. COVID, you know? of course. Come on, of course. He normally, you know, he's a he's a career 280 hitter, so that's that's good for a catcher. And plus, he's got pop, he's got power, and you know, a lot of people like him behind the plate. He's a Gold Glove winner, so he, he is a good catcher by position. This is a good move. I mean, okay, they're they're keeping cool. You know, they're trying to they're trying to keep the whole core together here with with Bryce Harper and. The Phillies are doing what they can. And, and plus, JT Realmuto, the age doesn't make any difference when it comes to a catcher because we already know that if you're, if you're a catcher and you can hit, then they'll move you to first base. Yes. 
Absolutely. Now, uh, I will say this, though, Brandon, and again, I'm just I'm deferring to your younger knowledge about some of this stuff, because unless the Phillies are playing the Mets where I live in New York during baseball season, I don't see the Phillies. I don't know anybody plays for the Phillies. Of course, I've seen I've seen Real Muto play before, but I'm not really up on this stuff. But I do want to tell you this. I love baseballreference.com, especially their historical rankings of similar players at their position. So here we go. These are the 10 most similar catchers in baseball history to JT Real Muto. We agree. We, we start with number one on the list, Ed Taubensey. Then we go to Stan Lopata. This, uh, Stan Lopata is an older guy. You wouldn't know who that is. Jan Gomez, Wellington Castillo. Shame on me and shame on some of you older guys out there, too, because I know you joined me in this boat. Harry Danning, who? The New York Giants catcher for 12 years throughout the 30s into the early 40s. Shame on me. I'd never heard of him. The only name I did not know on this list. Then there was Giovanni Soto, Chris Hoyles, the former Eastern Michigan star and Bowling Green baseball coach from my boyhood baseball cards, John Romano of the White Sox and Indians, then Wilson Ramos, now of the Tigers, and Michael Barrett at number 10. Brandon, that's not exactly a murderer's row of catchers to be the highest paid catcher who ever lived. Well... I <laughs> I think that you need to go through like you have to go through the similar batters through the certain age and when you do that you start seeing Victor Martinez and Carlton Fisk and Jonathan Lucroy who had some good years and AJ Przinsky. That's where you need to go. I think Well this guy's 30. Could be 30 next month. He's not a kid. Well that's what I'm saying is you're going through similar batters on 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 baseball reference that's like through a career you need to go through similar batters through this guy's age and then you'll start seeing good good okay. I'm, good catchers. I'm, I, believe me I'm bowing to you on this one buddy. Do you know do you know a better offensive catcher right now? I mean some people could argue Gary Sanchez but I I think JT Real Muto is the best catcher in baseball. Grayson Griner. Who? Grayson Griner. He's not. He, what, well, he what, he hit at least one eighty five last year, didn't he? In his role with the Tigers, he's no JT uh, Real Muto. <laughs> now, so anyway, I'm beginning. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'm also beginning to come around to your youthful knowledge on the issue that we broached on the show several times in the past, and did it with Tom Gage uh, on the last program about whether, in point of fact, these guys Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame, along with Roger Clements, along with Kurt Schilling. Now, how's this for the pot calling the kettle black? Reggie Jackson has spoken up about Schilling not being voted into the Hall last week. Jackson told NJ.com, NewJersey.com, that he would tell Kurt Schilling the only person to blame for not getting that ticket to Cooperstown is himself. Reggie says, I'm quoting him, I would say to Kurt, Look at what you did. You took yourself out of the Hall of Fame because of what you say and how you express yourself and how you think. Freedom of speech is great, but we cannot have a country with white supremacy, Nazis, Black Panthers, racist stuff, and anti-Semitics. We can't have people wearing swastikas because it's a freedom of expression. Come on. I hardly think the far right-wing Schilling stands for all that. Of course, J- Jackson's one of the most miserable excuses for human being ever, and that didn't keep him out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Reggie openly, shamelessly courted favor with the writers during his career while treating we broadcasters and you fans trying to get his autograph like dirt under your feet. But, I, Brandon, look, I, I, I must be wrong on this because everybody, Gage, Danny McLean, you, they all seem to now agree that you should forget it, let bygones be bygones, and put Bonds and put Roger Clemens in the Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, I mean, some of, some of the guys, there's, it's just no-brainer. Barry Bonds is the best hitter statistically in the history of baseball. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous that he's not in. Same thing going back to Pete Rose as well. But, you know, when it comes to Reggie versus Kurt Schilling, this is just one of those things. It's just one of those political things. They don't agree politically, so that's why you're not allowed into the Hall of Fame. Okay, now, I want you to consider this, because I hadn't, and I bet you folks listening right now hadn't thought about this either. Here comes Goose Gossage, and he's also talking with NJ.com. Though they had a big weekend, didn't they? He not only said that if Mike Messina is in the Hall of Fame, then Kurt Schilling should be too. But Gossage said, what would a guy like Kurt Schilling say in his Hall of Fame acceptance speech? Would he veer off into right-wing politics, pro-Trump rants, and wacko conspiracy theories? Because you know those guys can say anything they want to. So Goose Gossage says, and now I'm going to quote him again, Schilling is a bit of a blowhard, but I don't have a problem with freedom of speech. Everybody wants to be this counterculture now where you can't even have an opinion. With Schilling, you shake your head, but at least it's America. You used to be able to say, what the hell's on your mind? As we do on this show. I think a lot of writers continuing on with Gossage, he says, I think a lot of writers play games with the voting politically. I just don't understand it. Not only is Schilling kind of confused about this, I've been confused. And then when they asked Gossage why he was confused, he asked rhetorically why Dick Allen or Greg Nettles weren't in the Hall of Fame. He didn't appear to be too frightful about what Kurt Schilling might say in a potential Hall of Fame induction speech. Gossage said, it depends on what he has to say. I never thought that politics and sports mix. Look what they've done. Taking a knee. Black Lives Matter. What a bunch of crap. Go out on a street corner for a real cause. They take the fans down with them. They have to look at this crap. I'm not saying there aren't causes that we shouldn't stand up for at all. Not on the field. The words, don't write letters, folks, to me, of Goose Gossage again. Did you see, Brandon, that the that. Brewers announced Thursday after we again, we, we just finished recording our show. All these kind of fun stories break as soon as we're done. The Brewers have hired Sarah Goodrum. Sarah Goodrum is their new minor league hitting coordinator. She's 27. Yeah. She's going to oversee the Brewers program throughout the organization. She's going to manage the hitting coaches at the team's affiliates. They'll report to her. And when the coronavirus pandemic goes away, as it will, she'll travel around the system to assist in player instruction. She's already been working with the team for a few years, 2017. I mean, she played Division I softball at the University of Oregon, yeah. and then got a master's degree from Utah in exercise and sports science. So, Brandon, here's a much softball for you. This is the new hitting coach yep. of the Brewers minor league organization? Yeah, and I'll tell you why. The reason being is analytics and all this new technology that's been ushered into Major League Baseball, it doesn't take a actual baseball person who played the game to be able to read the computer, see the simulation when you throw the ball or when you swing the bat. Basically, they have the computers that say, the reason why you're missing that ball is because your launch angle is off or because you're swinging too early. It's all taking the technological route to better hitting. I believe that it doesn't matter that she's a female or that she never played Major League Baseball. She is simply going to be using software to help them hit. When you take a look at the Houston Astros, they've been doing this with pitching. A lot of careers that have gotten spiked in Houston because of this technology and the pitching aspect. Justin Verlander goes over there and he has one of the best 
seasons of his career. Garrett Cole goes there. He becomes one of the best pitchers in the entire league. Charlie Morton was there while they were doing this stuff. He becomes a a sought-after number one guy in Tampa. Denny would be so angry because she never, uh, you know, slid into second base. Right. But, but we're dealing still, even though it's 2021, we'd like to think of ourselves as more liberated. We're dealing with the macho world of sports. You're dealing with macho, tough guys, with athletes, with you know, type A guys, type A men. And now here comes a 27-year-old girl who played Division One softball trying to tell me how to hit a pitch baseball coming at me at 100 miles an hour. I'm just saying, Brandon, I think there might be a problem with this. Well, all I think she has to do is point to the computer and say, "Okay, look, Ryan Braun, this is why it's happening. It's nothing personal. Here and it stop is. Stop using steroids, Ryan Braun, while you're at it. Sure, no. sure. From that to our necrology, this is the, the, the worst part of the show we have to do every week. It was announced Friday, and this was kind of personal for me, and I think a lot of you listening to us right now are going to be able to relate to this as well. Uh, It did not get hardly any publicity at all, which shocked me, because this is a very prominent Detroit Tiger we're talking about. Paul Foytek passed away last week. He was 90 years old, one of my boyhood heroes. He signed with the Tigers in 1949 after graduating from Scranton, Pennsylvania's technical high school. And you thought Trixie was the only Detroit Tiger from Scranton, Pennsylvania? So Paul spent four full years in the Detroit farm system before his first trial with the Tigers in 1953. He made the Tigers staff in 55, and from 1956 to 59, with Jim Bunning and those guys, he was a prominent starting pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Think somebody like, you know, Milt Wilcox or somebody like that, a very famous, well-known pitcher. During those years, Paul Foytek was among the top 10 pitchers in the American League. In fewest hits allowed per nine innings three times, top 10 in innings pitched, and strikeouts, complete games, fewest walks per nine innings. And in 1959, the first year I really started collecting baseball cards, Paul led the American League in games started with 37, traded to the Angels in 63. A month and a half later, during the sixth inning of a game against the Cleveland Indians, I can still say that, right, Indians, Paul Foytek became the first pitcher, he wouldn't have been proud of this, to give up home runs to four consecutive hitters, direct from my and your Boyhood baseball cards, you baby boomers out there. Those four hitters were Woody Held, Pedro Ramos, a pitcher who was a good hitter, Tito Francona, and Larry Brown. And remember this? Paul gave up some of the longest home runs you've ever seen at Tiger Stadium to Mickey Mantle. When his career with the Tigers was over, he stayed in Detroit as what else is ex-athletes go, a manufacturer's rep. Then he retired from business, moved down to Tennessee. Great guy. I was in awe the first time I ever kind of met Paul. I was an 18-year-old umpire. He was in his 40s, still pitching for Detroit ITM, the great Sandlot Club there. Only thing he had left, he used to throw really hard, was a major league slider. I'd never seen one before. And I called a game, missed one pitch. That was the only thing Paul Foytek said to me. He looked in from the mound. He said, where was that pitch? And I pointed outside because I blew it. Paul Foytek, he'll be missed. Also Friday, John Chaney on a national level passed yeah, away. Yeah. 89 years old. Great basketball coach who recall at Temple for some 25 years. Controversial, outspoken, angry, threatening at times, but a proud man who grew up in a tough era. He grew up black in a very tough era, and he never took any guff from anybody. John Chaney coached more than 1,000 games. He's a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame. I'll always remember him for that fiery press conference uh, with John yeah. Calipari, yep, where, he, Calipari. <laughs> where he said, I'll kill you. That was great. Yeah. yeah. And um, Scott Erickson is also a dead man. 
not literally. The ex-standout major league pitcher is just 51. I think he's pretty healthy, but he's essentially dead anyway. Because did you see this? Two children are literally dead. The L.A. Daily News reported that Erickson was racing a woman in their cars on September 29th out there when Rebecca Grossman's car struck two young boys on a crosswalk and killed them both, eight and 11 brothers. Grossman continued driving for a quarter mile, hit and run until her engine gave out. So she's been charged with two felony counts of murder and vehicular manslaughter with gross negligence, as well as a felony count of hit and run driving, resulting in death. Her life's over. She's 57, facing 34 years in prison. Here's Scott Erickson, and I know you all remember him as a pitcher. He was a good one. He's 51. His day in court comes up March 16th for arraignment. 15 seasons in Major League Baseball. The Twins, the Orioles, the Mets, Rangers, Dodgers, and Yankees wound up 142-136. Remember, he went 20-8 and with a 318 ERA in 1991 and finished second in the American League Cy Young voting, helping to lead the Twins to that World Series win over the Atlanta Braves. Wow. Scott Erickson can look forward to having his life essentially ended now as well because I'm sure he's going to prison for a long time not to mention the prison of his own mind. As for the rest of his days, he thinks about those two boys that they killed drag racing in Los Angeles. Amazing. Holy crap. That's, yep. I, I didn't even know that. I, I, I didn't even see that story, and now yeah, I'm looking just, at it. And so, so he was just essentially racing another car. Well, he, he, yeah. Like, you, remember, you remember one Cle- uh, pretty good ball player, uh, Bobby Phils of the Cleveland Cavaliers, was killed, I think it was 91 or 92, in a drag racing incident on the streets. They're not at tracks. They're just drag racing on the streets. Insanity. And who knows if alcohol is a factor in this thing as well. Just, oh, God, the stuff you see. If you're, I'm a reporter. I'm a news junkie. I'm reading all the time, every day. And the stuff you see, so much of it is so disheartening and so impossible to believe. The tragedies. And from that, folks, as promised, we go to not our, your mailbag. And you can tweet us or tweet me, I should say, at Bob Page Sports. Denny's not that active. Eli's not active. And even Brandon's not that active. Here's Paul Caron on the topic of the day. Uh, he's an old guy. And another media vet who should know better, a transplanted Detroiter now living and working in the sovereign foreign nation of Alabama. Paul wrote, maybe just maybe this is the turning point, a.k.a. Think about this, Brandon, a.k.a. what the Grant Hill trade did for the Pistons starting the rebuild with Ben Wallace. The Lions get a serviceable quarterback replacement and two number one uh, draft picks. Rarely have I seen a more one-sided Lions trade. Goff has won playoff games. Stafford is not. But the key will be what the Lions do with those picks. You never know who wins the trade until years later, but it is a rare moment for we Lions fans to think, Holy crap, they got this one right. I agree. Herbie Herbst wrote us, guys, in exchange for Stafford, we're getting two first-round draft picks, a third-round pick, and Jared Goff, a quarterback who has played twice as many playoff games as Stafford ever has in one month. Of course, I'll be rooting for Stafford to win with L.A., especially because it's more likely they will win the Super Bowl than the FLs. But I think this is a great deal for the Lions and shows that maybe we can be optimistic about ISWT. In Sheila, we trust. Hey, Herbie, I got a quick question for you, buddy. Uh, Your name is Polish. I know that because when I was a boy growing up in the Rosedale Garden section of Livonia, Michigan, our next-door neighbors were named Herbst. The kids, all older than I, were Gail, my favorite. She was a doll. Billy Herbst, Russ, and Mary Alice Herbst. You related? You can 
get back to me privately. Romus, that's what he goes by. He says, this absurdly lopsided Lions trade probably cannot happen in a city that gives two hoots about its pro football. I suspect the Rams brain trust can get away with such lunacy because L.A. couldn't care less. Oh, well, how fun it is for Detroit Lions fans to be the fleece or instead of the fleece E. We almost never get to enjoy this feeling. But, you know, I think that now, the Rams fans are actually, I, I, I don't think that they look on this too negatively at all. You know, some some of the Rams fans were Jared Goff fans. They did like him, and they kind of found him to be a scapegoat. But I have seen a response from Rams fans who are just excited to see Stafford because right now the Rams have a window. They have a great defense, and they have great players, and they have a coach who a lot of people believe in, in Sean McVay. So I, I feel like a lot of L.A. Rams fans are just as happy as uh, about this trade. They don't care about picks. The Rams haven't picked in the first round in like 10 years or something like that they always get rid of their first round draft picks it just seems to happen and they still have a good team and that's also to say that uh brad holmes came from la so i'm wondering if he's going to be shipping out all our all of our brand new first round draft picks but we'll wait and see there but i i really think it's a win-win for both teams about Thursday's show with guest Hall of Fame baseball writer Tom Gage, Mike Rizzo says, Great show as always, Bob, but I have to agree with Brandon that baseball really shoots themselves in the foot with crap like the HOF vote. Bonds and Clemens were never proven cheats, just like Pudge wasn't, and Pudge is in the Hall of Fame. How about that? So Denny got a compliment from his pal Ify the Dopester, who wrote me, and I quote, Denny is sounding more and more like Casey Stingle each show, it seems. At least I think that's a compliment. Tony Krajewski, that's a Polish pronunciation. I guess that's how he does it. Uh, he's worked on the Pistons broadcast, he tells me in the past. And he tweeted an interesting article from something called the Mythbuster series about Andre Drummond not being a good defensive player. He says, Bob, check this out. I think Brandon is right about Dre. You should listen to Brandon more. I agree with him. Drummond is not a good defensive player. Keep up the great work on the show. Listen. Did you guys ever have him? Go ahead. <laughs> listen. <laughs> they love you out there, man. Your people are speaking. No, no, no. But listen, when it comes to Andre Drummond, come on. We were benching him at the end of tight games just in with the opportunity of winning. You can't just have a guy who you have to sit in the waning minutes of the game because he's a liability. I no, I watched Andre Drummond. But he can't shoot free throws, right? They did no. they didn't want him fouled and, and have a shack attack thing, have him go into the line, right? Yeah, and he refused to try to do anything. He, he he refused to shoot underhand if that would have helped. You know, I think Rick Nobody Barry does that anymore. I think Rick Barry yeah. said, Hey, I'd help you. Yeah, but it's who cares? Who like it's a yeah. macho thing, like I can't shoot overhand. I'd rather yeah. shoot thirty percent overhand than ninety yeah. percent underhand. That's yeah. silly to me. Hey, hey Brandon, do you have a, you have a little brother? Nope. Well, I wonder if you folks ever had a little brother, uh, an alter ego type who annoys the hell out of you, but you love him anyway. I do. Anthony Fischelli, the longtime field producer at Madison Square Garden Network in New York, stuck to me like flies on feces for many years in there. He sent me this note on Twitter about Brandon. I enjoy the show with a younger perspective. The other way, it was the old men on a hill who were set in their ways. Jeez, Brandon, did you think Denny McClain, Eli Zurich, and moi are old men who are set on our ways? No. But, folks, we've got some more mailbag coming up for you. You listeners down in Toledo, thanks for joining us as always. Tune into our website, hear the rest of the show, and author Tom Stanton. You've been listening to the No Filter Sports Podcast. So, anyway, uh, you can email us uh, too if you would like to. 
uh, our website, nofiltersportspodcast.com, or send us something via Gmail, asknofilter at gmail.com. So here's Daryl Champagne. You know, I talked about uh, the difficulty of getting good guests on the last program. Uh, it is for every talk, sh- talk show, for the most part. Uh, and Daryl had a really good uh, suggestion for a guest, interesting anyway. He says, I don't know if you're familiar with Rivals.com, but they run message boards for college sports. UM has one that I believe Michael Spath, uh, who was just on our show, is involved with. Michigan State has one called Spartan Mag. That's run by Jim Camperoni. He'd be a great guest to talk about the state of the basketball program and the progress of Coach Mel Tucker. Daryl, I mean, I've been going on rival for, Rivals for years. It's the Bible of high school recruiting. My thing I'm always careful about when booking media people is whether they are unbiased or whether they are working for a house organ or, and you guys out there are smart, you know some of the people I'm going to refer to now, though not by name, if they work for a legit media outlet, but act as though they're working for a house organ. But I'm going to look into this. Thanks for the suggestion. Paul, Muskegon, Michigan, writes us, love the new format. Nothing against Eli. Much more actual sports talk, though, with you and Brandon. Less shtick. Brandon's doing great in his expanded role. I suggest Eli is a guest every 10th show if he decides against returning. I lived in Saline many years ago, so know all you guys way back to past. And Eli, the lead sports guy on the various TV stations uh, in Detroit. You know, Paul, it's really funny you should suggest this. I had a long chat with Eli over the weekend. He's not going to come back to the show. Okay, I'm sorry to say he just isn't going to do it. But while we're talking on the phone, he launches into this impassioned speech about how much he loved the Tiger Woods recent documentary on HBO and what it meant to him personally because of his own relationship with his own father. So he finishes this thing. I just let him talk. And when he was done, I said, Eli, that should have been on our show. What you just said was so great and so interesting. It should have been on our show. Why don't you come on the telephone? Whenever you got anything to say, you want to go off and do an editorial or talk to us for a few minutes, let's do it via phone. And he says he's going to think about that. So we'll see. You can text us or you can call us on the telephone at 760-89-BALLS. You can leave a message. Mark from Troy in Detroit's northern suburbs said, Hi, Danny and Bob. Love your show. I miss Eli, but you guys are doing a real good job. He wanted to ask Danny, who, again, is not here on the program today, if the Tigers are really trying to sell the team. Why would they go after and pay the best manager available? That's a good question. And I don't know where Denny ever got all this stuff about the Tigers being uh, readied for a sale. Tom Gage talked about that with us the other day, and he said they're not going to sell the team, but they'd like to have it saleable in case, you know, the proverbial offer they can't refuse uh, uh, comes along. And then this is for Denny, but I'd rather have you answer it, Brandon, because you follow this more closely. Uh, Mark wants to know if the Tigers should pick up Rick Porcello again. <laughs> Rick Porcello, I, 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 I think Rick's days are finished. But you know what? The Tigers aren't going anywhere. Why not? I, I wouldn't hate it. I, he probably would come in. I, I personally, I'd rather just see all of our young kids play. But uh, yeah, he's a free agent. I don't know who's going to take him. Long, long gone, or his days of winning Cy Youngs in Boston. But uh, yeah. I, I always thought anyway. he was a pretty good Tiger. Yeah, Keith from Oak Park makes a great suggestion. Mike Hartman, the Detroit native, played in the NHL. And Keith, I'm really going to look into this. I promise you this time. Francis and Wald Lake wanted to write about a hockey national broadcast and saying how he doesn't watch the NBC games because he would much rather turn the sound off and listen to Detroit's own Ken Cal and Paul Woods. Uh, David Foster, we hear from him time to time, the transplanted Detroiter who's an attorney in Indianapolis. He wrote, Bob, I just finished the last show, really enjoyed it. The chemistry and energy among you, Denny, and 
Brandon was fantastic. So many topics. Bonds and Clements should be in the Hall of Fame. To me, steroids in the 90s is not much different than guys taking speed in the 70s and 80s, just more effective. And of course, Gaylord Perry's in the Hall of Fame based on an entire career of cheating. He mentions Jeremy Grant. He says, I read an interesting article, an interview about him in The Athletic. Seems like a really thoughtful guy. Why did he want to come to Detroit and play for the Pistons? Because Jeremy's into social activism, and he liked that the Pistons had an African-American GM, and the city has a strong black culture, as I pointed out myself. He also said the statements about Eli being so important to sponsorship and interviews are concerning. He goes, and I quote, I love your show, and I will be crushed if you can't hang on. Finally, Tom Gage was awesome. And one last note, Brandon, from regular listener G Champ Green to you. He says, Brandon, warm weather, sun, and a blue sky definitely ease the pain of age, arthritis, and a bad back desk. You simply feel better. You'll be there one day, Brandon, and understand firsthand. But for now, stay young. I am enjoying your increased participation in the show. Well, thank you. I I look at it as, you know, listen, I would rather be cold and freezing and around my family and friends than warm in an area where nobody is around me. Some people don't believe that way. Some people would rather be off and by themselves and in the warm climate. I want to be close to the ones I love. So that's my and that's my situation. My, my family and most of my friends are in Detroit. I would rather be here in West Palm Beach where it was 80 degrees and sunny yesterday. And with that, Brandon, let's get to our special guest. Tom Stanton, born December 17th, 1960 in the Detroit suburb of Warren, is a highly successful book author who got this really cool idea. When it was announced that Tiger Stadium was shut down forever after the 1999 season, he would go to every single home game that year and write a book about it. The final season came out in 2001. In 1983, Tom Stanton co-founded The Voice Newspapers in suburban Detroit and served as editor for 16 years before embarking on a literary career. He is a former Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan, and he teaches journalism at the University of Detroit. In 2008, He won the Michigan Author Award. Now, I first heard of Tom a few years ago when his book about Detroit in 1935 came to my attention. As most of you know, that was the year Detroit was the city of champions, with the Tigers having won the World Series, the Wings winning the Stanley Cup, Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world, and the Detroit Lions. Yes, the Lions world champs, too. But there was a lot more than just sports to Detroit in that year. Hence the title of his book, which I bought putting coins in his coffer and read and really enjoyed terror in the city of champions, murder, baseball, and the secret society that shocked depression era Detroit. Tom Stanton, welcome to the show. Good to see you, man, at least on a little closed circuit zoom feed here. So um, where'd the idea for that book uh, come from? Let's start with that. You know, terror in the city of champions. It uh, comes like most of my books, actually, from my uh, childhood obsessing over Detroit sports. I had these. Uh, we used to have these Christmas celebrations when I was a kid, and my dad's uh, large Polish Catholic family would come to our home in in Warren, and I had this uh, elderly uncle, my uncle Clem, who would reminisce about. Uh, like my other uncles about his childhood in Detroit and this spectacular time in the thirties when the, the Tigers were uh, on the verge of becoming champions and then soon the lions would and the wings, as you mentioned. And then uh, uh, Joe Lewis wasn't yet a champion, but he was undefeated and about to uh, become one. And they would talk about this glorious uh, six month period when all these teams were 
being celebrated. And I was, you know, a kid in the early 70s when the Tigers were a couple of years past their 68 prime. They'd have 72 in a few years. Uh, the Lions were like the Lions have always been in our lifetime. And Gordie Howe was near the end of his days and the Pistons uh, weren't doing all that well. So I used to be so jealous. And uh, they talk about uh, the celebratory time. But there was also a darker story that one of my uncles would talk about. Yeah. What was, yeah. I know, because I read your book, what was the secret society that shocked Depression era Detroit? Right. And I, of course, as a kid, had never, I got the G-rated version from my, my uncle, which was uh, he and uh, one of his other brothers, my Uncle Bucky, a boxer, were walking with friends in the black neighborhood of Detroit down near Hastings Street in Paradise uh, Valley, which was the entertainment center. And this car pulled up beside them and a couple of guys in the car started asking them, you know, what are you guys doing here? What are you white boys doing in this neighborhood? Up to no good. And uh, my uncles took offense. They were progressive, art, artsy uh, sports guys. And uh, it, it, this uh, situation accelerated into a encounter. These guys identified themselves as police. They weren't in a, they were in an unmarked car. They did not uh, have uh, police uniforms on. They pulled guns, ordered them into the backseat of uh, uh, their vehicle. And in my uncle's retelling, he would say, uh, I thought it was the beginning of the end. I thought it was the infamous Black Legion, the Night Riders, and we were going to wind up dead in a, in a ditch somewhere. And uh, Who were they? Tell the people who they were. Uh, yeah, well... Well, let me just, uh, the guys actually in the car were, turned out to be cops and my uncles ended mm -hmm. up in jail for the night. But, right. uh, but the Black Legion was a terrorist group that was operating, uh, it was a secret society in Detroit and many other industrial towns in the Midwest in the mid-1930s. Uh, and uh, they were, uh, became co-opted into the anti-union movement, but they had a lot of the same hatreds as the Ku Klux Klan did. Uh, they like to say that they were against every ism other than Americanism. Right. Which was also big in Detroit. The KKK had a presence in Detroit. I just finished reading, because I like to read books about our hometown. I just finished reading uh, the book about the Ossian Sweet Trial, the oh. black physician, uh, and everything, the, the racial strife in Detroit during that era. It's a sordid and unpleasant history, isn't it? Yeah, Kevin Boyle's book is brilliant. But uh, So that was in the 1920s, and the the Klan actually, uh, you know, was successful in eventually elevating one of its guys to the mayorship in Detroit. But then there was a clampdown on the Klan in the twenties, and just that might have eluded people. Mm -hmm. The city of Detroit had a mayor who was a Ku Klux Klan member at one time. Yeah, Charles Bowles, and uh, when Bowles was recalled, actually, that's when we had the the famous murder of the disc jockey in Detroit, uh, who was incredibly uh, popular. His name is escaping me at this moment. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and so the, there was a lot of membership in common between the Klan and the Black Legion. The Black Legion kind of was a successor and a rival. It was more violent than the Klan, actually. Uh, the honest police captain with the state police that, whose view I trust, uh, because uh, there were Detroit cops who were involved in the Black Legion as well, uh, attributed about uh, 50 murders in Southeast Michigan to the Black Legion. And sometimes they would be labor activists uh, who the police uh, would not uh, investigate their killings, uh, the killings of. 
And uh, other times they would actually be Black Legion members. Uh, the Black Legion was involved in assassination plots against uh, uh, the mayor of Ecorse, unsuccessful, I should say. Yeah, uh, the mayor of Ecorse, the a, a new state. And, and they would take they would take the bodies of these people they murdered in Detroit out to what was then the sticks. There was nothing in Pinckney or Brighton or those places out there, and they would bury the bodies out there, right? Well, some of them, yeah. Um, some were uh, ditched in the river. Some were just left yeah. uh, roadside. Uh, some were uh, actual members of the Black Legion because uh, guys would be tricked into joining. You know, you know a, a buddy would say, "You want to? We're going to have a go to a party, card party, uh, or a meeting of a about Americanism, or uh, you know, a barbecue, whatever it is." You'd end up at this event, maybe in Romeo or Adrian or uh, Lake Saint you know, along Lake St. Clair, out in St. Clair Shores. And at some point, uh, these guys would appear in these these black outfits, uh, the outfits of the Black Legion, yeah. and would be told at gunpoint that you had heard too much not to now be a member of the Black Legion, and you would uh, take the initiation vow uh, at gunpoint, right. gunpoint at your, your heart or head. Uh, agreeing that you would go to jail rather than reveal the secrets. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating... It's a fascinating read. I'm not just saying that because you're here. And so is the other book that I just mentioned about the Ossian Sweet Trial uh, in Detroit. Uh, you're a prolific writer of baseball books as well. I mentioned the final season for which your first major nonfiction work, you won the Casey Award given to the best baseball book every year. And Tom, you went to every home game with the Tigers that season. How did you stand it? Yeah, well, the book turns out not being so much about the baseball, but about the relationships of the people at the park and, and the history mm -hmm. of the park. And so it's about the relationships uh, between fans, between people who are uh, working at the stadium, and most importantly, uh, uh, in my case, a father-son relationship, my relationship with my dad, who was at that point in the final seasons, final years of yeah. his life. And, uh, you know, our story isn't wasn't unique with Tiger Stadium. Uh, but that's why the book resonated. Uh, four generations of our family sharing the game there. Way I think back that's really the cool. I, I think that's really cool. I yeah, really do. I'd, I'd like to read that myself. And I, I had never heard of it until somebody tweeted that out the other day, which yeah, is how I yeah, met you. It was, so it's done very well. Yeah. Uh, that and Terror would my, are uh, my two big. Uh, the ones that hit bestsellers list. Yeah, well, okay, but you've done other stuff too. Uh, the road to Cooperstown. Tell us about that. A road trip that you took with your older brother and your dad? Yeah, so uh, the final season comes out. It's a success. I get invited to speak in Cooperstown, and it was a trip that I had hoped to make when I was a kid. I mean, living this baseball-obsessed life as a little boy. And uh, my mom ended up having uh, life-threatening brain surgery, so the trip kept getting delayed, and until uh, it just wasn't possible. And so I was able to make this road trip finally with my elderly father, uh, my older brother, and uh, where I was speaking in Cooperstown. And so it's, it's about this journey of uh, that journey, but also a journey of a life through baseball yeah. and father and brother relationship. This sounds like this, I hate to tell you this because for, for, for those of us, and that's probably most of us who come from dysfunctional families, it sounds like you've got to leave it to beaver thing going on there. So <laughs> it's amazing family. There's dad and brother and we're going to games together and traveling and having a great time. I could leave you with that impression, but uh, <laughs> the, the final season actually deals with some of the dysfunction in that uh, I'm able to reunite my dad with a brother he had not seen in decades. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And uh, there'd been a falling yeah. out 
uh, that come from a yeah. large oh, I know. I, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so we have plenty of that on our side too. <laughs> yeah. Your third baseball book was Hank Aaron and the home run that changed America, a history of his pursuit of the MLB career home runs record. And as we all know, Hank just died. So I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't know about that. I haven't read it. Did you have access to Hank? Where'd you get the idea for that? No, I did talk to him. It. He didn't want to do a book. Uh, he had come out with his autobiography some years prior called I Had a Hammer, which was written with Lonnie Wheeler out of uh, Ohio and uh, a, a baseball writer there. But um but he did clear the way for me to talk to other people like, like family members, like Dusty Baker, like, you know, Ralph Gar, some of his close friends with mm-hmm. the Braves as he was closing in on the record. And it was uh, neat talking with Dusty, uh, who at that point was a, uh, a manager. Well, he's now a manager again, but uh, he would talk about uh, how his, uh, the guys under, under him would uh, sometimes complain that every uh every talk he gave in the locker room somehow involved Hank Aaron, who was like a father figure to Dusty Baker. Uh, Dusty was in the on-deck circle when Hank broke the record. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of the riveting parts of the book is that I tried to document is just how intense the death threats were that were, uh, oh, yeah. that Hank faced. That Wasn't he, there a great Sports Illustrated piece about that? Who wrote, was it Gary Smith who wrote that? Or I, 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 I but I remember that. reading this. Yeah. yeah there've been some good pieces over the years. And, yeah. and so uh, one of the guys I talked to was the bodyguard who was watching over uh, Hank that year. And it, you know, the threats were so serious that the FBI had a, an agent disguised as a maintenance worker at the campus where his daughter was attending college because they thought her abduction was imminent. Uh, when those, there's that image of Hank rounding the bases after he hits the home run, those two guys are, uh, you know, kind of join him at the side. But his bodyguard told me I had my hand in my binocular case, which is where I kept my gun. And I was deciding whether to, to pull it out and shoot at that point. Did, did you talk to those guys? Whatever motivated them to do that? Yeah, I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to track those guys down. They were just celebrating it. They just wanted to be part they, they of the faded back. They faded back into the obscurity they yeah. so richly deserve. No, no, no. I, I thought it was a good moment, personally. I mean, that those were the times where you could get away with that. These days... What, two idiots run out of the stands stealing the moment, stealing the greatest moment of the history of baseball? Are you serious? They didn't steal the moment at all. In fact, I think that those two that are rounding second with Hank Aaron, I mean, that that right there is it's history. People... Yeah, obviously you're not allowed to do it, but these days, you know, those guys would be, they'd be getting tased on the ground immediately. But I, I think it goes to a simpler time where that was allowed, and I think that we'll always remember that. I and, and those two guys, I've I've tried tracking them down for other shows in the past, and I have found that one of them, one of them ended up becoming a, like a optometrist, a doctor. They, they've, they've gone on to successful lives and stuff like that. So it's not like these are just two losers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't know. I think they are, and none of us who saw it will ever forget, as I said. Well, you know what? Here's, here's what we're dealing with here on the show, Tom. As you can tell, a generational gap. Maybe people Brandon's <laughs> age thought that was really cool, and maybe people my age, and you're a little younger than I am, didn't think that was so cool that those guys did that. Yeah. So anyway, you also um, you also wrote Ty and the Babe. Well, that's an interesting topic, a complex relationship between Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. Yeah, that's a good uh, word to use to describe it. They actually became friends later in life. Uh, people think of it, and they had this, during their playing days, this intense rivalry where they uh, almost came to, uh, to swings at one another a couple times. Uh, as a result of the relationship, there was actually a, uh, a riot at 
Tiger State at Mavenfield, as we're called then, in 1924, that resulted in the the Tigers having to forfeit the game. Uh, just they couldn't resume the, the couldn't bring calm back. So it was uh, it was one of the early books that uh, resurrects Ty Cobb's right, um, just how he's viewed is. Uh, a lot of people have a very uh, strong stereotype of of Cobb, and you may be familiar with. Well, aren't those true? Was he was he not a racist? Was he not a violent you know, he, person? He wasn't any more of a racist than anybody other else guy from Georgia right. in nineteen fifteen. Right. Well, know? here's I'll tell you what then you can say that, but I have read reports. People have always speculated, as you well know, that yeah. Babe Ruth was actually part black because right. of his features, his his wide, broad nose, his thick lips. And I have read that Ty Cobb called him constantly to his face the N word. That's how yeah. he referred uh, to Ruth. Is that true? I've not heard the N word. I've uh, I wouldn't surprise me. Uh, mm-hmm. He did anything he could to take Ruth off his yeah. Name. Yeah, uh, called him a gorilla a lot, an ape. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, there was a story from Ruth. Er, Ruth was rather uncouth as a kid. You know, he he didn't have much family. As a kid, as, <laughs> as an, well, adult, an too. adult too. But <laughs> but uh, Cobb grew up in a family where you know, state senator, school superintendent. They expect yeah. him to become a lawyer, doctor, and Ruth, of course, ends up in you know the Catholic uh, industrial school. And uh, when he was a rookie in Boston, uh, he. Uh, had a sweaty day out in the field, comes out, strips down in the, takes a shower, comes back out and puts on his sweaty clothes. And so Cobb and Ruth's Protestant teammates would tease him about that. Cobb learned about it. Whenever he passed Ruth on the field, he would say something like, something smells here. I think I I smell a pole cat. But uh, he did things. He was a mental warrior. So... uh, Interestingly, one of the scenes I use in that book is it begins with Ty Cobb coming back to Detroit on his way to Cooperstown to be inducted on a, on a train. And the person he most wants to talk to is a black man, Alex Rivers, who was a uh, one of his close friends. And Rivers had actually named one of his sons after Ty Cobb. Really? Okay, he had a close friend who was a black man? Yeah, I'm sure it was. Oh, more, it, it, uh, come on, it, it wasn't an egalitarian relationship. Him, so I'm sure it was yeah, a, kind of a something like relationship. that. Yeah. Hey, so um, there are people out there listening to us right now who may have already written a book themselves or they're thinking about it. How do you do that? And what advice would you give them? How do you get a book published? Yes. I mean, there are a whole lot of different ways. I'm fortunate that four of my five baseball books have been published with what used to be the big five in New York City, now Mm -hmm. the big four. And to get access through them to be published with one of the big houses, you really need an agent. So that's your first search. So what I would recommend is look at books, look in the acknowledgement section of books that you think are kind of in the same genre, books you admire, and see where they thank the agent and write that agent a, a nice letter and let them know what you have in mind. Yeah, you got to knock on doors. In other words, that's really the key to life in so many respects. Do you have, of all the books that, that you have written, do you have a favorite one and why? You know, they're all favorite for different reasons, but the 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 first baseball book, the final season has a special place in my heart now that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, further along in life. And, uh, you know, my dad is, has been gone and it's just a, it's a book that resonated with a lot of people. I still get, I still get mail related to that. And it's still in print. It's going to be the 20th year this, uh, this spring, 20 years in print. So that's quite wow. an accomplishment. And they can, of course, obviously find all your books on Amazon or online or however they find books. Uh, yeah. Hey, what are you working on now? You want to tell us? You know, I should be, uh, 
very slowly I'm working on a, a book related to World War II and Mickey Cochran's <laughs> team at Great Lakes in Illinois, which was arguably the best team in baseball that year. A team of servicemen that went uh, played most of the major league teams, uh, but it's also uh, and, and defeated everybody except two teams. And uh, but there's also a powerful father-son story. Mickey Cochran's yeah. son. You like you uh, like that, don't you? You you like that theme, don't you? You like that theme, father and sons. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm my own. I love Guild of Dreams. You know, I'm sorry. I, I know my look, look, look sentimental yeah. stuff. I'm I'm okay with. My own father died an accidental death when he was 39 and I was 13. I'm Bob Page Jr. You think there's ever been a day in my life that's gone by that I don't think about my dad. It took me to my first baseball game in May of 1959 at Briggs Stadium. It's a very, very interesting theme. And Eli Zarrett, we were talking on the phone again the other day. He told me actually that he became emotional and broke down in tears because of his own difficult relationship with his dad when he saw this HBO documentary now on Tiger Woods and his relationship with his overbearing father. It's a real interesting thing, isn't it, Tom? The influence our fathers have on us is, is can be spectacular yeah. both ways. And we, in turn, the influence, if we have them, the influence that we have uh, on our sons. Uh, I, I, I would just say this in closing, that everything I've ever read about writing a book, and I wrote one myself, but which is inconsequential a number of years ago, but it's the same advice. If you want to write a book, write what you know. You know Detroit which is why your your works are so popular with Detroit sports fans and people from Michigan. That's what you write about, Detroit. Yeah, all of my books take root of my childhood and this obsession with, with sports as a kid. Yeah. Hey, Tom, it's been so great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, hope uh, hope we sold some books for you today. And when you get finished with us, you walk over to the Liverpool and McNichols, walk into the president's office at your alma mater and tell them it's not Detroit Mercy. It's the University of Detroit, and let's get this basketball program together again. Get out of this Mickey Mouse conference and bring Detroit back to glory. Can you tell me that funny, Tom? Yeah, yeah, sure. But the sisters of Mercy <laughs> us financially, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Tom right, Sant, ladies care, and gentlemen. Guys. Good talking with you. <laughs> yeah, and on behalf of Brandon McAvee, thank you guys again for joining us on this edition of No Filter Sports Podcast. 